Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. I have two goals for this morning. My first is to speak for a few minutes on the joy of Jesus. And my second goal is to avoid catching my shirt on fire if I get too excited up here. So the ushers may have to help me if that happens. I, you got me? All right. Thank you. Our Advent candles represent hope and peace. And today we lit joy. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we meditate on these in the Christmas story. But they also take us to the Easter story. They take us to the upper room, the night before Jesus' death. So let's, uh, if you would, please stand with me again. Let's read our, our main text for this morning. It's out of John 15. I'm going to read 9 through 11. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Before you sit down, can you just say with me, my joy, your joy, my joy, your joy. Thank you. Please have a seat. What we're doing is zooming forward from the Christmas story for a few minutes to what's called the Upper Room Discourse, and uh, starting in John 13. So here's the setting. Jesus and his disciples are having the Passover feast. Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close, and he knows this, but the disciples still don't understand what's going on. They have a meal. Jesus takes off his outer garment and takes up the towel and washes their feet, which is the, the posture of a servant. They would have first of all, been shocked at that. He's, he's the rabbi. He's the teacher. He's not supposed to do that. But then Jesus is troubled in spirit, the Bible says, because someone was going to betray him. Troubled in spirit doesn't sound, it, it's easy to read, but it probably means some expression of sorrow, of anguish, maybe tears. And the disciples are shocked because Someone is going to betray you, Jesus? Jesus predicts that Peter will disown him three times. And yet, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The disciples were probably troubled and afraid, don't you think? It's in this context, the scripture that we read, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Don't you think the disciples... We're pretty confused at this point. What joy, Jesus? Our hearts are breaking now. We're confused. We're not full of joy. Do you remember Jesus' launch sermon, if you want to call it that, in, in Luke 4, was to preach from the scroll of Isaiah 61 that says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, 
Instead of shame, verse 7 says, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. This is what the disciples are expecting. Everlasting joy. They're ready to make Jesus king. They're ready to overthrow the Romans. They're ready for the Gentiles to come, to come to the king of Israel. Where is the everlasting joy, Jesus, that was promised in the scroll of Isaiah? In less than one hour from this point, Jesus is going to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, drop, sweat dropping from him like drops of blood, the Bible says, agonizing over the Father's will for his sacrifice. So now let's go back to the Christmas story and look for some joy. This is the part that we're familiar with. Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier, Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest. Even before Jesus, 700 years before Jesus comes, joy is prophesied. And now, a generation before, before Peter, before James, before John, before Jesus are even born, we have an angel coming to Zechariah. And he says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Speaking of, of John the Baptist. Of course, the angel appears to Mary. Mary goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. And what happens? Elizabeth is filled with the spirit and the baby within her leaps for joy. Elizabeth gives birth to John and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, has not even come yet. And still the world is abuzz with joy and wonder. What is God doing? And then, of course, we have these familiar passages from Luke 2. We have the angel appearing to the shepherds in the field and saying, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The shepherds find the baby and they return, glorifying and praising God. Probably a couple years later, the magi come. And what do they do? They are overjoyed when the star leads them to the child. So we see that Christianity is joyful from first to last. Even before it began, in terms of Jesus' incarnation, there is joy. There is joy prophesied. There is joy with John, the forerunner of Jesus. And there is joy all around the birth of Jesus. We have angels singing of Jesus' birth at the beginning. And then we have angels in the book of Revelation singing around the throne of God. The New Testament is full of exuberant joy, despite also being full of some tragedy and injustice. But was Jesus himself joyful? Let's look for a few minutes at the ministry of Jesus. Because some people remember Isaiah 53 that says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that was true. But let's see when it was true and how it was true. You see, Jesus had friends that he loved to spend time with, to draw aside with. He enjoyed nature, and he often illustrated the kingdom with the things that were around him. You remember that 
he would say, don't worry, consider the lilies of the field. He, he told the Pharisees they knew how to interpret the weather, but they couldn't interpret the times that they were in. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Can you imagine him just walking through the garden? He spent time in boats on the Sea of Galilee. He spent time going up mountains to pray. He was out in the creation, the very creation that he made, enjoying it. He attended weddings. Where was his first miracle, public miracle? At the wedding, the wedding in Cana. He attended Jewish feasts. He attended meals in people's homes. This is no sour-faced, critical spirit Jesus. If you want camel's hair and locusts, you have to go find his cousin John in the wilderness. That's not Jesus. Jesus could passionately drive money changers out of the temple, but also rejoice exuberantly when the 72 returned, telling him reports of all the miracles that were done in his name. And he rejoiced exuberantly. Jesus delighted in helping people, in healing their diseases, in finding the lost, and looking for even a little bit of faith. The children wanted to come to Jesus. And you know that little children are a good read of character and gentleness, aren't they? Can you hear Jesus engaging the crowds as he's teaching? He's teaching on prayer and compares God to an important judge who's worried about being worn out by a persistent widow. He's teaching on hypocrisy, and he describes a man with a beam in his eye, trying to pick the speck out of someone else's eye. When he's talking about forgiveness, he compares a servant who was forgiven millions of dollars, going out and choking another servant who owed him just a few dollars. He kept the crowds engaged. He withdrew for prayer, and he fasted. But don't you think he would have obeyed his own commands to his disciples? He said, and when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So the people would not have even known that Jesus had been fasting. Paul would later write to the Romans, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to ask a question here as I pause. Do we ever pit righteousness against joy in our lives? Righteousness against joy in our lives. Are we ever secretly afraid that if we go all in and obey the Lord's commands, that we will lose joy, deep joy? His commands are not burdensome, First John says. So we forget sometimes that his commands are for our good. And if we forget that, then what happens is we wander off like the prodigal son. We think there's something better down the road. But what happens is we end up broke and smelling like pigs. And thank our father for welcoming us back. But it doesn't have to be that way. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. There were two occasions, remember, where Jesus justified his actions to his detractors. One, in Mark 2, John's disciples and the Pharisees asked, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And do you know what he did? Jesus compared himself and his disciples to a bridal party. A bridal party, which is pretty clever because the Jewish law said bridal parties were exempt from fasting. The other case was in Luke 15, the Pharisees complained that Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. 
So we have Jesus in a bridal party mentality and going to dinner parties. That doesn't sound like a sour, sad Jesus. This is a joyful, rejoicing, exuberant Jesus, and the religious spirits around him couldn't take it. They were offended. Jesus himself declared that his work was joyful. Do you remember when he said that he was like the shepherd who would leave the 99 to go find the one lost sheep? He calls his friends to do what? Rejoice with him, to rejoice. In fact, Jesus declared there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. It's like a woman who loses a coin and she sweeps her whole house to find it. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls her friends and neighbors to rejoice. It's like the father that I just mentioned who has the prodigal or wasteful son. But when he sees him coming down the road, he welcomes him back. And then what? They have a feast. More rejoicing. I wonder if we sometimes lack joy because we take our eyes off of the values of Jesus. When I forget to seek the lost, when I forget to be concerned about other people coming to the Father, then I am turned inward and focused only on me and my issues, my problems, my concerns. We need to lift our eyes up and see the harvest around us. If we lose our love for those around us that Jesus died for, then we become like the prophet Jonah if we say anything at all. We are slow to obey, we have a bad attitude, and then we stand back just waiting for the lightning to strike, waiting for God to judge all the wrong things that we see around us. But Jesus embodies the truth that those who are most happy and joyous on earth are the ones who do the most for others. We would say that Jesus lived in humility and self-sacrifice, and that's true. But what did Jesus say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. He was tired and hungry at the well in Samaria, but he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus said that we find our lives by losing them. Do you remember the story he told of a man who found a treasure in a field and then he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field? Sometimes we focus on what I've given up for Jesus. This is what it cost me, Jesus. I sold everything I had. That was a lot. I'm really counting on you. We're focused sometimes on the sacrifice. Where is Jesus' focus? Jesus' focus is on the spiritual treasure that is without value and the joy of having found true riches, the kingdom of God. That's where Jesus' focus is on not on our sacrifice. Sometimes I think it's easy, maybe especially in the Christmas season, to shift our focus onto our own sacrifices and our own schedules and to forget about him, forget about his sacrifice and forget about his schedule. Or we live up to social expectations of those around us and it's pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Who would think all the parties and the gifts and the food is pressure, the shopping, but it is pressure. Now, the joyful Jesus that we have in the Bible presents us with boundless hope. Boundless hope. Do you know pessimism is not a Christian virtue? 
If God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, then nothing is too good to be true. Isn't that true? In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, even if only one quarter of the seed fell on good ground, he said it would produce 30, 60, or 100-fold return. That's pretty optimistic. The kingdom may start small like a tiny mustard seed, Jesus said, but it will grow into a big tree. He has no doubt. Though the wheat and the tares grow together until the end, when God will separate them, Jesus is not worried that the tares are going to ruin the harvest or choke out the wheat. He's content to let them grow, and he knows how to separate them. Jesus was perfectly confident of victory. He was not intimidated by his enemies. They were looking for ways to trap him, to trick him. They were looking for ways actually to kill him. They finally found one, but he was not intimidated. This is not just optimism of saying, well, the odds are in our favor. It'll probably go okay. This is a godly hope that our God is victorious. He will win. He has already won. He has already conquered evil and death. We are living now in the between times, between his first coming and his second coming. So we don't see the fullness of it. But we have hope in God this morning that he is victorious. Amen. If our hope is lacking today, then maybe it's been diluted or neglected. Maybe we're looking too much on the broken culture around us and not enough at the Son of God, our Savior, who came to redeem it. So we have seen that Jesus' ministry was joyful. Now, let's go back to the upper room. In John 15, the disciples are troubled. They're afraid. They're full of grief. Jesus said he's leaving. They don't understand where he's going. Peter is hurt or offended. Can you imagine being called out as a, as a, as a denier in front of your, your friends? Judas, he's already left. We don't know where Judas went, but he's given up on Jesus and he left. From this moment on, there are going to be no more hillside lectures. There's going to be no more attending feasts, no more healing crusades, no more teaching in the temple courts for Jesus, no more casual dinners with the disciples. Yet Jesus' joy does not depend on man or circumstances. Does he love these things? Did he enjoy these things? Absolutely. But they did not define his joy. When these doors were closed, and here in the upper room, they have slammed shut. He is about to go to the Father. He is about to give his life. Night has fallen, and the next day holds unimaginable anguish and suffering. But Jesus reveals he has a depth of resources and joy that no man can touch. No circumstance can deny it. That is when Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Isaiah 53 said he was a man of sorrows, and it's true. And here we see it. Here we see it. But Psalm 30 also says, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Even in this dark time, even in this most anguished time of Jesus's ministry, 
There is joy. There is joy. So what is the source of Jesus' joy? We need to know about that if he gave it to us. What is the source? It's not a what, it's a who. It's not a what, it's a who. You know, John chapters 14 through 16, the upper room discourse, he's talking to his disciples. It's almost like you could call it Jesus' last words in a sense. It's before he dies on the cross. He's going to see them again after, but this is a, a, the, probably the most intense time of teaching here. This is where Jesus teaches more than anywhere else on directly on the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises in this in these passages, in these chapters to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter. He says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will testify about Jesus. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised to send, is the key to our sharing in Jesus's joy. I want to show that to you by going to a passage a little bit earlier in John chapter 7. This is at the Feast of Tabernacles. In this feast, men from all over Judea and Jerusalem, even outside of Israel, would have come because this is one of the traveling feasts for the Jews, the three traveling feasts. They would have come to Jerusalem and the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted seven or eight days and they would build booths or tabert, little tabernacles like huts within a Sabbath day's walk of the temple. And they would stay in these huts all week and have celebrations. It was the most joyous celebration of all the Jewish feasts. That's the context here. Part of the tradition was to pray for rain. This was at the end of the harvest, but they needed a good rain to replenish the soil for next year's growing season. So part of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would pray for rain for the upcoming year. And every day, the high priest would lead a procession down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would take a, a special uh, a cup and take some water out of the pool, and then they would have this procession back up to the Temple Mount. And as he would get to a particular gate, the southern gate, which is called the water gate, silver trumpets would blow. And the priests would repeat the words of Isaiah 12, 3, that says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then he would go and climb up the altar and he would pour out the water before the Lord as an offering. Can you imagine the crowded Temple Mount? Can you imagine all the jubilant people there for this joyous feast and celebration and the water being poured out by the priest? And then what do we see in John 7? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Out of his heart, that word heart, it's, it, it's, it's actually the same word for womb or belly. It's out of the, the innermost part of you, some translations say, innermost being. This water that Jesus promises it's better than bubbly. It's better than LaCroix. This water is alive. Have you thought about what living water? What can that mean? In the natural, that means 
water that's not just collected in a cistern like, like rainwater. It's actually a spring. It's, it's alive. It's flowing. It's moving. But there's another way that I think the water is alive. That's because the water is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is alive. Amen? He is the Holy Spirit, and that's who Jesus sent to dwell in every believer forever. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria? John 4.14 says, But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. That word gushing is literally, it means leaping. And it's the same root for the word rejoice, to rejoice exuberantly. Can you see this connection between the water that Jesus gives and the joy of the Holy Spirit? It's all over the Feast of Tabernacles. It's all over what Jesus is promising here. This spring of water that wells up to eternal life. And now where is he living? Jesus is with the Father, but the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Amen? On you and on me. So Jesus promised the disciples in the upper room. I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. No one. So why can no one take our joy? Because the Holy Spirit is with us forever. Forever. That's not just until Jesus goes back to the Father and then, good luck, you're on your own. That's not until we forget about him and he just kind of drifts away like some kind of a vapor. It's not until we mess up and he says, well, forget that, I'm leaving. And he abandons us. It's not until we go through the first hardship or a trial or a difficulty or persecution or sickness or even death. The Holy Spirit is with us forever. Forever. He's more powerful than any trial or circumstance. More powerful than any emotional pain or loss or disappointment. And he is the source of all good fruit in our lives including joy. See, our joy, brothers and sisters, is not limited by what we can see and touch. It doesn't come from the Christmas tree or the presents. It doesn't even come from the people who gave those to us. Our family, even as precious as our family and our friends are, that's not where our deepest joy comes from. We enjoy those things because Jesus did. He made them, and, and they are good and joyful. But the deepest joy that we have in our lives comes from the Holy Spirit of God that lives within us when we have believed in Jesus. It is, it, it is an untappable well. It, is, it cannot be uh, exhausted. It is constantly welling up. Constantly welling up within us. If that well is dry or seems to be capped, then we need to ask the Lord to unstop the well because it is ready. It is pressing. It wants to gush up from within us. We just need to understand that it's there and remove whatever obstacle and say, Lord, please let your joy, let your life, the fullness of the spirit gush up from within me, not only for me, but to flow out of me to those around me. Amen. So on this third Advent Sunday, I want us to consider, does my joy measure up to the joy that Jesus has? There is a joy that 
is available that far exceeds what I normally experience. What about you? This message, as often happens, sometimes means the most to the person standing behind the pulpit. I need more of the joy of the Lord. I don't think I'm alone here today. Amen. Would you mind standing with me as I finish? I want us to think about if anyone here is struggling with this, with joy this Christmas season, it could be anxiety, depression, fear. Maybe you just feel like, I don't have enough joy. I need more joy, the joy that Jesus has. You're not struggling alone in the fight. Even if no one knows, we have weapons to fight with that are not natural weapons. It's not just about picking ourselves up, getting happy for the day, watch a, a comedy movie or something. It's not about happiness. Happiness is great, but it comes and it goes. It's an emotion. Joy is much, much deeper than that. Joy can sustain us even in the trial, even in the sorrow and the loss. We can still have joy. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives on the inside of you if you have believed in Jesus. That spirit came with joy in announcing the coming of Jesus in his birth. And he made Jesus the most joyful man that ever lived. Even when his best friends all deserted or betrayed him, Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised its shame. And Jesus wants you to have that joy today. For no person, no situation, no memory, no trial can ever take it away. David wrote in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. So my prayer for all of us this Advent season is that we would learn to abide in the presence of the Lord. That means to live, to dwell in the presence of the Lord. You say, wait a minute, the Lord is everywhere. That's one of his attributes. That's right, he is everywhere. But there is a felt tangible. There's an awareness of his presence. It's not the same as just being in creation where God is all the time. There is a closeness in which is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. I want you to remember that Jesus through the Holy Spirit is with you forever. That means not just here today, this morning, on a Sunday morning. It means on a Sunday night, on a Monday morning, he's with you. It means in the middle of the night, when you're anxious and can't sleep, he is with me. By the bedside of a sick child, he's with me. At the hospital bedside with a family member, he's with me. When I'm on the phone with a troubled friend or a crisis situation, the Holy Spirit is with me. Whatever we go through, we can have fullness of joy. So Jesus said, out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. So if you need some more joy this morning, just put a hand on your belly and let's just pray about that. I want to pray for you.
I'm going to do two hands. I need extra helping of joy, Lord. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning. We rejoice in the promises of God. We rejoice in Emmanuel, Jesus with us. We rejoice at the life and ministry of Jesus, all that he taught us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We rejoice in serving others and reaching for the lost. Help us, Lord, to be more aware of those around us who need you, who need living water that you have given us to share with them. Lord, we rejoice in the good things that you made, in family and friends and holidays and celebrations and dinners. Lord, we do rejoice in those things. We thank you for them. We rejoice because we have confidence and hope of your victory. You are victorious. and We will stand in that hope. We rejoice knowing that you are coming again, Jesus. The world talks about Christmas as though sometimes, Jesus, you were just a little baby in a manger, and that's a beautiful scene. But they don't really track with the story sometimes of how you grew up and became a man and gave your life and died on a cross and rose again and ascended to the Father, and that you are coming again in power to rule. We give you glory this morning because of that. We rejoice as we look forward to that. Lord, we rejoice even if we are counted worthy of suffering for your name in this life, even through trial, even through tribulation, we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Finally, Lord, we rejoice that the Holy Spirit lives in us forever, gushing up as living water, teaching us the truth, and giving us Jesus's joy to the full. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you today. Go in joy and the peace of the Lord. And before I close, I wanna say, if there's anyone in this room that does not know the peace of Jesus and the joy of Jesus. If you have not believed in him as your savior, please come and see me after service. I wanna introduce you to him. Praise the Lord. Thank you all for being here this morning. Go this week and remember to live in great joy and let that water gush up out of you and flow to everything that you touch whether it's office parties or family dinners, gift giving, caroling, whatever it is, let it be the joy of the Lord, not just the joy of the season, but the joy of the Lord that flows out of you. God bless you.